0: This morning's passage comes to us from the book of Acts, the story of how the Spirit led the gospel to be all-inclusive, not only for Jews, but for Gentiles, for all the nations of the earth. And our particular passage today comes to us from the 17th chapter, where Paul is doing his mission work, his witnessing of Christ, to those who lived in Athens, Greece, Athens, as you know, at Paul's time, was the seat of the great learning philosophical uh, presence of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. It was thought to be the heart of intellectual thought in the world, or the Western world at that time. And as Paul travels around Athens, he discovers that everyone has their own idol that they worship, a little hyperbolic, but nevertheless, everyone seemed to worship different idols and different gods. And what Paul is wanting them to see is whatever it is in them that's longing to find the God to worship is the creator God that Paul is bringing to them through the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and especially through the story of Jesus. The passage begins in the 22nd verse of the 17th chapter. May the Spirit of God open us up to an understanding of this word Paul stood in front of the Areopagus, that's the hill upon which the Acropolis was built. Stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines or churches made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives us, all mortals, life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. This is the word of the Lord. I had an epiphany in studying for this passage this past week. I don't know how I've missed it all the years of ministry, but I found it remarkable that there are so many references in the Bible to nations or nation. In fact, there are over 550 uses of the term nations or nation, and in those days, they were not as clearly defined nation states as ours are today, uh, as arbitrarily drawn as they are, Uh, but they were more cultural collective groups, peoples, neighborhoods, say, who spoke a similar language who may have been kins, uh, kinship, in kinship with each other, uh, more localized, these nations, the Amorites and the Hittites and the Jebusites. I mean, there are like a billion of them as you go, th- again, hyperbolic. There are lots of nations in the Bible. And it all begins after the flood, that poetic, metaphorical story in the two chapters in Genesis, beginning in the 6th chapter through the 8th, It begins with that flood story when all the world, of course, is demolished by this flood except for Noah and his wife and Noah's sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and Jephath. And strangely enough, by the way, Noah's wife nor the son's wife are ever named in the story, but that's the way it was back then, of course, in that patriarchal world. Uh, and, And God tells Noah, this is my covenant with you. You shall be in you, 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 shall, you shall multiply and be fruitful over all the earth, you and your sons. And they apparently um, propagated like rabbits. For out of that one family grouping, the family tree would be huge. Forty different nations are listed to be related to Noah and his three sons. And apparently God seems to pervert, prefer diversity. And it happens again in the Tower of Babel story when all the people in one city on the plain of Shinar gather together and they want to build this giant, you know, tower up to the sky so make a name for themselves. And they would now have all the same language and all the same culture and they would all be much alike. And, and God looks down and says, no, not going to do that. And from that moment on, God sends down the angels to disperse the people in Babel all around the world with different voices and different languages and different nations. Then Abraham, the father of our faith, God calls to leave his father's house to the land that he would show him with this covenant. I will be with you and you shall be an ancestor to all the nations. As I read the Bible, it occurred to me that it assumes... It is God's will that the world should be a collection of different races, clans, languages, cultures, music, food, and nations, and neighborhoods, and families. Now the reason this was a surprise to me as a Christian, and it may be to you too, is because we've always sort of assumed that God in the end times, you know, at the, at, at the apocalyptic, eschatological end times when God comes again and restores God's kingdom, that there won't be any need for nations or neighborhoods or local clans or tribes that we'll be all one melting pot together. We'll sing it at our our last hymn today. In Christ there is no east or west, in him no north or south, but one great fellowship of Love throughout the whole wide earth. And while that's not really saying that there won't be nations, what it is saying is that all the nations and clans and tribes will come together at the end time, drawn by God, the King of all creation, where God sits on the throne and all the nations will gather there and get along. It's clear in the book of Revelation the poet looks out into the future of God's consummation and says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down. See, God's home is among us, mortals. The first things have passed away, and the one sitting on the throne says, I am making all things new. And immediately, I just sort of assumed that all the dividing Walls that that stand between us, the 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 race and nationality will no longer exist. That we'll all be singing praises to God together, and our only language will be a language of worship together. And of course, it will be in English. We'll all be gathered around the table of our heavenly Lamb, sharing the supper. And he will dwell with us, and God will wipe every tear from our eyes. And death will be no more, and mourning and pain and suffering will be no more. And that he will judge between the nations, Isaiah says. Between the nations, not us individually. And he will arbitrate for many peoples, and he shall shall have them beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks, and nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Peace, yes. Justice, yes. But God doesn't seem to want to do away with nations or clans or tribes. And what this passage tells us, according to Paul, as I understand it, is that it is important for us to be associated with those local organizations around us, family, neighborhood, city, state, nation, to offer up our duty and our civility and our honor and respect. But where we get into trouble is when we turn those nations and tribes into an ultimate concern. Where our allegiance now is to the nation state or the tribal state or the clan state and not to God. We get into trouble when we think that we're in charge of making all this happen. And in that case, then, we're building God into our own image, which, of course, is the definition of an idol. In the 1920s, Walter Rauschenbusch pushed hard for a global organization around the issue of the social gospel. Built on the issue of justice for all, you can imagine it was a great image the social gospel, and that was the role of the church, was to proclaim and reinforce this social gospel movement so that finally all of the governments and people in the world would be turned toward justice and care for those who were on the outside. And then in 1980, when... Ronald Reagan ran for office. He stood in front of the newly formed Evangelical Association and said that my vision is that America will become again a shining city on the hill, claiming the biblical image of this new Jerusalem city on the hill for our United States. And at that point... The evangelical church that had gotten no connection to power up to that point finally found their voice. And that was the moment that the evangelical church became buddies with government. Both sides, the liberal social gospel side and the evangelical more conservative side, both ended up buddying up to the national power structure and I think we've seen in both cases how idolatrous that's been. In 3003, when Emperor Constantine decided that all of, the, all of the nations under his emperorship will be Christian, that was the moment that nation and church, state and church, got married for all intents and purposes There was no longer any separation and that lasted until 1963 in Greenville, South Carolina, according to Will Willimon, who discovered on one Sunday afternoon that Christendom had come to an end when the Fox Theater opened up to show a movie. And at that moment, all of the Blue laws and Sunday laws had stopped and the culture in which we live was now secularized and no longer Christianized. And Willeman says that was dividing point between church and state's happy marriage. And what Willeman says is, thank God that happened. Because you see, Paul is saying while we're called to claim and use and and honor and support our nation states, our neighborhoods, again, we are not called to worship them or to hold them up as some absolute authority. And every time the church does that, and I'm prone to do it as much as anybody I'll be the first to confess. What we have done at that point is we have said there is a political resolution and solution to the problem. But what Paul is saying is that the only political and social solution to the problem is in God's hands. And that our... Honoring the state is one thing, but worshiping the state is something else. We pray in our Lord's Prayer on earth as it is in heaven. Which means, of course, that, that God's plan for all creation will be true on earth as it is true in heaven. And what we're praying in that is that we as Christians will become citizens, not of our United States, or England, or Scotland, or Canada, or Mexico, but citizens of the city in heaven. And it says it all through the New Testament. We are citizens of the kingdom of God in heaven. And when we pray for the kingdom to come on heaven as on earth, we are saying, In heaven as on earth, we're saying we want our citizenship in that place, that time, to be made real for us. That we know we are called to live into that citizenship and responsibility as God's people call Christians. That's our true home. And in the meantime, where we live, whatever nation, we're just journeyers. We're we're wayfarers. We're on a mission, which means movement. And the mission we're on, particularly in our little nation state or church state called Riverside, of course, is a movement for reconciliation. Because that's the plan. That's the vision of the Bible that is it's given to us. That God will bring reconciliation to bear of all the different nations and peoples and races. Reconciliation will happen, but not by making everybody the same. So to say this, I think is great, it matters. It matters because in our world of white nationalism, that tries to say that we should be just a nationalist country built on Caucasian values. We are not taking seriously God's vision for diversity. It matters because with the Me Too movement, when we're called to be as citizens of heaven, we're called to live according to the way Jesus lives. And if the Me Too movement is about truth and justice, then we support it. It matters because with Black Lives Matter, does that movement, a Christ-like movement, we as Christians must own up to that. In my sense, yes, you may have a different opinion. It matters because whether we call ourselves liberal or conservative, Trump supporters or Trump never agains, populist or Brexit, whatever tribe, as Christians, our tribe is our ultimate concern. And that's the kingdom of God. It plays itself out over the issue of the national anthem of kneeling, supporting. Where I play golf, um, we can hear the NAS, Naval Air Station, play the national anthem on their loudspeaker at 8 o'clock in the morning, and everybody stops when you're on the golf course and they take their hats off and they put their hat to their heart, and and we honor the national anthem. And we do it again uh, uh, on Thursday mornings when... Uh, Riverside Presbyterian Day School comes in with the, with the flag the US, United States flag and also uh, our religious present flag and, and, and we say the Pledge of Allegiance One Nation Under God and, and everybody stands and puts their hand over their heart but not everybody uh, I don't and Bill Hoff doesn't And our headmaster doesn't, and neither does Prudence Baldwin, our religious teacher, who is probably the most evangelical, conservative, good person you can ever imagine. And that she doesn't do it strikes me what she knows and I know. We don't do it because our allegiance is only to the kingdom of God. We're called to honor and respect and obey, and serve our nation-states, but we are not called to give it our total, ultimate allegiance. That's for God. We are citizens of a different place, the kingdom of heaven. And the mission we are called to be on is that of reconciliation, and this church gets it. I'm preaching to the choir here. You get it. You picked the mission. It's been the mission all along. Because we call ourselves a purple church. Where those on the red side and those on the blue side can come together and share a greater allegiance than that particular political viewpoint. You get it. You get it when we decided to, to discuss and vote on whether we should open this sanctuary for the basis of marrying same-sex couples And we went through a four-month process of inviting the congregation in for conversation and discussion and theological rationale. And when the session decided to finally vote on it, it was 13 to 5. 13 for opening it up and 5 against. And after the vote, there were tears. Not from those who had lost, but from those who had won. Because they felt bad for those who had lost. And they also wanted those who had lost to understand how important their vote was and how important their voice is in this conversation because none of us have the only perspective. We need each other. And so after that vote, the five and the 13 came together in hugs and that was the moment, I can only tell you, that my heart sang for joy at the power of the Holy Spirit to bring reconciliation in that very, very contentious place. This church gets it. And I hope you always will. For this is what we have to teach our children. We are never settled in this world. There is nothing in this world that will save us. We are always aliens, resident aliens, citizens of a different place. And our job here is to be a witness to the world of what God's love and reconciliation looks like. Where else will they see it than from us? Amen. You got me? Let me hear it. Amen.